From The Ringer, I'm Tyler R. Times. When I spoke to NFL star Cam Newton in January, his mindset was clear. I want my whole career to be in Charlotte. Cam won't be getting that wish. He was released by the Carolina Panthers in March. Cam is a complex figure, and my interest in him goes far beyond his exuberant smile and transcendent style of play. Cam broke the glass ceiling in American athletics, ascending to a place in the sport that few black quarterbacks have ever reached, making his fall that much more dramatic. Over the past year, I've traveled the country speaking to coaches and teammates, friends and family, reporters, and even briefly to the man himself, trying to unravel the enigma that is Cam Newton. I uncover contradictions at every turn. How can the hardest worker on the team be depicted as a bad leader? And how can a franchise icon with an NFL MVP and Super Bowl appearance on his resume be so abruptly cast aside? The Ringer NFL Show presents The Cam Chronicles. The series premieres Monday, July 13th. media consumers you've got the press box brian curtis and david shoemaker of the ringer here we got a lot of stuff for you today we'll talk about that letter in harper's magazine that was signed by everyone from jk rowling to matthew iglesias what brought these people together and what was the point in listener mail we address the urgent question did the new york times just reuse the heavyweight champion of celebrity profile headlines All that plus David Shoemaker guesses the strain pun headline and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, let's start with the new book by Mary Trump. She is the niece of Donald Trump and herself a clinical psychologist. Her book is called Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. David, I'd have to know what your favorite accusation from the book is so far. Number one, Trump paid a stand-in to take the SAT (laughs) for him. Or number two, Trump gave Mary Trump a food basket, I guess re-gifted her a food basket, in which the caviar had been removed, right? (laughs) (laughs) One of those things where you get like caviar and crackers, not that I've ever gotten that in my life, but the caviar was gone. Listen, I... uh... I know that, you know, dogging the president for his like lack, I mean, for for some, doing something like having someone else take the SAT for any any bad grades or, or whatever conniving he it took to get him into college. I know that's all fun. And especially, you know, in a world where he spent years dogging our previous president for uh, with similar accusations. I get the joy of that. But there is a sort of old-fashioned scampiness to, like, getting someone to take the SAT for you that I can, I don't know if appreciate is the right word, but, like, you know, there's a, there, I have a sort of wistful memory of the days when you could do that without the fear of, like, public recrimination and 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 potentially losing, you know, your career and everything else that would follow. I think the caviar thing is much more to the point of like who this man is as a as a, in the psychological profile and uh and so I'm going to I'm going to lean on that one. Absolutely. If someone ever gave me the Pepperidge Farm basket for Christmas, 
and remove the good cheese in the salami. I'd be pissed. <laughs> Harry and David shows up with one pair and a bunch of like empty <laughs> holes where the other ones were. That would be terrible. I'm going to the press too. We should say that this book is less about the Trump White House as John Bolton's tell-all and some of the other ones have been, yeah. than about the Trump family backstory, which feels straight out of succession. Mm -hmm. Mary Trump's grandfather, Donald Trump's father, was Fred Trump. Mary Trump says her granddad was a sociopath. That's her word. He made fun of her dad, who was Fred Jr., and then Donald joined in. That's where Donald Trump became the insult comic we know today, a Frankenstein's monster, Mary Trump writes. Uh, Mary Trump's dad, Fred, dies relatively young. And when Fred Sr., the grandfather, dies in 1999, she finds out that she and her brother have been cut out of the will. Then things got really ugly. At one point, Mary was called a bad granddaughter uh, in some of the testimony and court depositions that followed because she wore a baggy sweater around her grandfather. That is a true detail. <laughs> also, David, remember the blockbuster Trump financial investigation in the New York Times two years ago? Yeah. Well, it turns out Mary Trump was the source for that. Yeah. Also fascinating, Suzanne Craig, who was one of the Times reporters who broke that amazing story, showed up at Mary Trump's house. She did not want to talk, but Suzanne Craig left a business card. Uh, some time goes by, Mary Trump changes her mind, and she winds up giving 19 boxes of documents to the New York Times reporters in her driveway, wow. which is pretty incredible. Got a couple questions for you about all this stuff. As a veteran of the book publishing industry, <laughs> what did you make of the rollout of this book where seemingly every big ticket political writer on the planet woke up in the morning and said, hmm, just found an interesting book outside my door. What could this possibly be? And then started tweeting out the revelations. I mean, listen, I don't have any any issue with this book being published on, and it, regardless of a, any agreement, legal agreement that they may have reached before. This is, and, you know, the, the stat status of the presidency. I mean, this is a clear free speech issue and and I'm glad the book exists. That said, uh yeah, they really worked this one. I don't know how they they got away I mean how how they got through the 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 White House trying to challenge the book because the the publisher wasn't uh you know wasn't held to whatever agreement that Mary Trump had signed. It, that seems like a really easy way to get anything you want out there, right? You just got to like, just make sure that they, that you have a publisher and then, then, then they're not liable for any of the agreements that you've, that you're privy to. And then listen, getting the book out there, that was the real checkmate move because even if this book had been still in litigation, then suddenly if all the information is out there, then keeping it away, like, like publishing it doesn't do any extra harm, right? If the book just kind of gets leaked out to the press, the information's there, then the publication of the book is is a sort of a fait accompli. Listen, I uh, I mean we've all seen this. We've all in the book publishing world. I mean in ever in any sort of media world, this is just called you know seeding the marketplace. This is like just gets the info out there. And as we've discussed before, there's really no limit anymore to like the stuff you want to keep exclusive to the book. You know, I mean it's so many of these books are bought not to be read. Again, as we've discussed many times, <laughs> and. 
I don't know that anybody picked up a Michael Wolf book and said, well, shit, there wasn't anything in there that wasn't in the New York Times and everywhere else. You know, no, they never got that far enough in the book to find out that there was nothing new in there. You know, you expect the news, the news organizations to have all the info. And uh, and it's you know, it's, it was a really effective move. I mean, they got it out there. This is like this is this went from and I don't know if this falls under like the Streisand effect umbrella or whatever. I don't know if the the lawsuit from the White House really raised the profile of it, but it sure does seem like it did, only because that's been the entire narrative of the book in the in, in the public sphere, right? And that the White House trying to keep it out of you know from being published made us really interested to know what's going on. And just like so many things with this White House, it's, it adds legitimacy to the detractors because you just you know why would you why are you trying to keep John Bolton's book from how can you call John Bolton's book bullshit? but then also try to keep it from being published on national security grounds, right? I mean, and it's the same thing with this. It just raises the profile of this, you know, seemingly very compelling uh, psychological interrogation of the president. Well, it used to be the Trump tweet, right, that inflated the sales of every book that was critical about Trump. Yeah. But now it's a two-step publicity <laughs> process where yeah. you get the Trump tweet, but before that you get the Trump lawsuit. Exactly. This this dangerous book must not be shared with the public. What better invitation is there if you're Mary Trump and Simon and Schuster to sell the book? I mean, that is just absolutely incredible. And And I want to circle back to what you said about providing certain writers with a copy of the book. Uh huh. This is kind of amazing to me because somebody tweeted out the acknowledgments of the book, and I I believe Mary Trump is very online. Uh, She (laughs) thanks. Charles P. Pierce and Adam Serwer in, in her in her acknowledgments. So this is somebody who is reading the same Twitter accounts that we yes. are, I think. And when you look at it, Pierce got a copy of the book. Jonathan Chait got a copy of the book. This was not mm-hmm. where you just go to the big ticket, you know, reporters, the Maggie Habermans, you know, people at the Washington Post, things like that. Or, or even the old school kind of like opinion page writers, right? That would have been the maybe the Obama era go to. Yeah, the George Will got a copy of the book on his doorstep. Yeah. You were really, it feels like they were really micro-targeting people with a couple hundred thousand Twitter followers mm-hmm. who are big daily names in liberal political Twitter. And like, here you go. The Twitter thing is key for the rollout, too, because there's not I mean, not saying there's any lack of substance here, but there's no fact checking on, the, on people's tweets. Right. And you're just tweeting out the thing that you've got in your hands. And that that's just a matter of fact. If this were if they were waiting on the publication of the big, you know, right along Tom Times piece that might have that some of the it might not have been so seamless. Yes, I did notice one thing, and it was in one of the main New York Times pieces about the revelations in the book, is they kind of waved away everything she wrote about Trump and the White House. She had written some things apparently about about you know David Kelly and some of the other things that happened in the White House, and they were kind of like, these are events that she was not privy to. Yeah. So we're, we're kind of not going to touch that, but we are going to happily sort of take her word or at least you know happily share it with everything that happened in the Trump family, which I thought was an interesting sort of line to draw. Um, she writes in the book that she didn't share all this stuff in 2016. She is, she's not had a good relationship with her uncle in quite some time, but she did not share this stuff in 2016 because she didn't think Trump was going to win like everybody else. Um, and she also didn't think that whatever she said would penetrate the media at that point, which brings me to my next question which is all this stuff is interesting. I'm with you. Absolutely. She has the right to write the book and have it published. But 
what does kind of a familial psychological profile of Donald Trump do for us at this stage other than sort of inform the history mm. books that are going to be written 10, 20 years from now? Well, maybe nothing, but the, but the entirely damning White House memoirs haven't seemed to have much that much of a negative effect either. So, I mean, if it if it makes if it makes the target audience more convicted of their feelings about the president or warms the cackles of some anti-Trump, you know, person's heart, then then maybe it does its job. I do think that there is a more significant piece to this, which is even as Trump's politics continue to be popular. And I, you know, use Trump's politics loosely, but his, his politics can continue to be popular amongst his base. I do feel like the real like battlefield in the election that's on that that's coming up, you know, sooner and sooner is sort of rounding back around to Trump the person. Mm. And I don't I, I think as much as all that stuff didn't stick, and in this case, Mary Trump was right in 2016, you know, he could profess to sexual assault on on tape and just and everyone just sort of like laugh it off. I think that it's more of this psychological profile stuff that it's going to end up being really damning because we're see everybody that had a family member get sick or God forbid die from the coronavirus is going to start is going to start. I mean, has started looking at the president and look and trying to identify what aspect of his character it was that led what failing personal failing of his it was that led to this. And you see a lot of that reflected in the personality profile in this book, at least in the parts that we've been we've been shown. Right. And I do think that it's it's not he is an evil man. He is a rapist. He is a he's a white supremacist. Those things may well be true, but I think the parts that are really going to have that are really going to have potency in the, the purple parts of the country are these just sort of more almost pedestrian things that make him just seem like a shitty dude. So she's not the first person to call him a narcissist and she's not even the hundredth person to call him a narcissist. Mm -hmm. But as the Democrats build their case against him, you're saying, especially with things like, his complete disinterest in doing anything about the coronavirus, instead talking about the stock market or whatever he wants to talk about, reinforcing that idea becomes really a potent weapon against him. He's such a narcissist that he couldn't even be bothered to talk about the virus that's killed over 100,000 Americans. That's kind of thing. That's what you're saying? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that there's... Listen, I don't know that it's her specific point of view, although there's certainly a lot of stuff that she's the information that she's privy to that other writers aren't going to be privy to, or at least wouldn't even be as compelling if this was if her story was being retold by a New York Times writer or whatever doing a book. Right. But I do I do think that there's a there's a potency to the sort of repetition to the to the reiteration. And, you know, narcissism. Calling somebody a narcissist can be a pretty empty thing without de without specifics right mm -hmm. i mean it does not even necessarily an insult the way that it's used you know sometimes i think these i think the pettier the more insignificant some of these stories are the more it really underscores the point that some people take for granted there're going to be lots and lots more trump books over the next decades but in the particular subcategory of trump tell-alls that really began with Michael Wolf, whom you mentioned in 2018. Will this be mm -hmm. the last significant tell-all of the Trump presidency, do we think? 
You mean if Trump is doesn't win re-election, this will be the last one under the, in under the wire? Is that the question? <laughs> yeah, basically. Which is kind of a which is kind of an era of of literature in and of itself. I mean, Bolton being the penultimate one, right? And now we have Mary Trump. Yeah, it will be interesting to see just in terms of publishing schedules. We know Mary this book, every time one of these books gets a little bit of attention, they put it out a month early or two months early or three months early, whatever they can get. I wonder if as the election starts bearing down, if there's not going to be some Trump books in the pipeline that get pulled up to like, you know, a September 1st publication date. Every time you turn on CNN or MSNBC, it seems like there's a new author of Chiron under somebody's name that's like, you know, some new uh, Trump book coming out. This will probably be the last significant one to answer your question. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I think that, I think there's probably a lot of writers who are very, even writers who are under book contract already, who were who are maybe secretly very eager to pivot to a post-presidency book, a what-the-hell-just-happened book, uh, rather than to try to do a uh, another, like, inside the White House expose. Yeah, I just... You just sort of wonder because they feel there's all these kind of marginal Trumpy books that could be written if he had a second term. Like what's going to happen to those, right? And there is a whole Trump post-presidency. There's how Trump changed the Republican Party. There's what the hell just happened over four last four years of American life. There's lots of places to go with this. But in terms of and I and I guess we're I bet we get more tell-alls post-presidency too, right? I mean, there's there's zero chance that all these people whom he insults after he fires them are mm-hmm. not none of them will write books about what happened in a white house in fact there'll probably be a bunch of those yeah like we usually we usually get lots of presidential memoirs even with the even when the uh, occupants are not estranged from the president i guess i wanted to end here david with the thought that this has been a tough year for peter luger steakhouse in brooklyn allow me to explain <laughs> first Peter Luger, known as the place David and I tried to convince our parents to take us when they visited from out of town. (laughs) Unsuccessfully. Unsuccessfully. (laughs) Got taken down by Pete Wells in the New York Times last year. Then Mary Trump, not not to be outdone, Mary Trump writes in her book, Peter Luger was a deeply strange, very expensive restaurant. (laughs) It feels like she did the whole Wells review there in like half a sentence. (laughs) Yeah. I think so. Now, now I want to go even more, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, I, I, I think that I think that uh, description probably probably suits it. Do we have a food podcast that Mary Trump can be a part of? <laughs> uh, does does House of Carbs have a uh, have a slot next week? I want to hear more of Mary Trump's lacerating <laughs> criticism of New York restaurants. I'm sure Joe House would love to have her on. Let's make that happen. All right, David. Let's do the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious. That all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. David, did you see or maybe hear the new Joe Biden for president ad? Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't Maybe I missed it. If not, see what classic commercial associations this evokes. This job, this job is about protecting Americans, not tear gassing them for a photo op. It takes strength, courage, compassion, resilience. That's a president. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, I feel like buying a Dodge Ram pickup truck right now. (laughs) That's great. Love that music. Uh, David, the Wall Street Journal, our Wall Street Journal editor tweeted this yesterday. 
quote, Japan's theme parks have banned screaming on roller coasters because it spreads the coronavirus. Oh, no. Quote, actual quote, please scream inside your heart. <laughs> scream inside your heart. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. 2020's official slogan has been chosen. <laughs> Thanks to Elijah Wolfson, Matt Simmons, and Tom Ganjami. And about that letter in Harper's Magazine, signed by everyone from J.K. Rowling to Matt Iglesias to Ian Baruma to Wynton Marsalis, it was an overworked Twitter joke to write that the letter is Punditry's version of the Gal Gadot Imagine video. <laughs> Thanks to our pal, Matthew Zeitlin. If you reminded us of a shitty crossover event we'd forgotten because of all the shit that came after, congrats, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. That seems like six years ago. It really does, doesn't it? Yeah. All right. On that subject and in the notebook dump, first of all, Harper's Magazine has really entered the zone where we talk about Harper's controversies almost solely and never talk about, like, I don't know, Harper's articles that are divorced from controversy. I mean, what's yeah. the, what was the last time you just brought up a Harper's article to me? I was like, wow, that was a really, that was a really nice literary treatment of a subject. I do not know. Harper's letter in question came out Tuesday morning. It was just over 500 words long, titled A Letter on Justice and Open Debate, a.k.a. A Letter About Cancel Culture. It reads in part, the free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society is daily becoming more constricted. While we have come to expect this on the radical right, censoriousness is also spreading more widely in our culture. An intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. Dot, dot, dot. You had a take on this, David. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I kind of honed down on this quote from Nicholas Lemon, who's, who's a, obviously a fantastic writer and, and teacher and thinker. But he says... Um, and signatory to this letter. We should and know. signatory to this letter. I guess, yeah, that's why I bring him up. He says, what concerns me is a sense that a lot of people out there seem to think open argument over everything is an unhealthy thing. He says, uh, I've spent my whole life having vigorous arguments with people I disagree with and don't want to think we're moving out of this world. I really think that's the crux of a lot of the controversy around this thing because I think that everybody who signed this letter seriously worries about this issue and i and at the same time i don't think any of the detractors of the letter amongst which i would probably count myself would agree that this is even happening or at least not happening enough to for it to bear mention right now of all times you know i mean this is like this was this would be like you know a shop owner during the American Revolution just like making a public pronouncement that like everybody should be tucking in their shirt. This, this looseness with shirt tucking has really gotten out of it. I mean, it's like so beside the point. And to not see that, even if it's happening, even if this thing is really happening, to not see how that pales in comparison to what everybody else is worrying about right now is in essence, like that's the entire problem, right? I mean... I'm not sure like this is like this is as this is as disconnected from reality as like you know someone saying white lives matter in a not or all lives matter sorry in a not racist way you know it's like it's to it's still totally wrong it's still the problem I mean it's it's just such an it's so idiotic 
I, I'm with you. I just, I mean, just, just for starters, I, I find the timing of this just to be completely gobsmacking. I really do. That as you say that this, the issue right now is that we're not having an open debate in American society, right? This, this is the key issue or mm-hmm. even, even within the realm of journalism that we're not allowed to have an open debate without being canceled. And I'm just like, what, what have we just spent the last several weeks talking about in American life? What, mm-hmm. and what, why, why are we, why are we shoving this in right now? And yeah, when I hear that Nicholas Lemon quote you talk about, I just think it's really important. I'm a fan of his too, a great fan of his writing. I've been reading him for, for a long time now, but look at the magazines that guy came up writing for, right? The New Republic, mm-hmm. The Atlantic, The mm-hmm. New Yorker, right? Guess what the composition of those magazines were, right? And so when you say, well, just, you know, I came up having a free and open debate about ideas. Did you? Yeah. Did you? When you look at the mastheads of those magazines, you, you did? Really? And, and were those magazines not set up to make a certain, certain people in this world essentially uncancelable? And to essentially make this whole kind of thing. And like that, that is so the point of this. And somehow that just completely seems to sail over the heads of the people who signed the letter. Well, and I mean, it, it, you know, Nick Lemon was not at all involved with the New Yorker uh, during the time when there was the Steve Bannon New Yorker festival controversy. But you have, but your mind immediately goes there, right? Where you have David Rimnick or whoever saying, oh, I just had Bannon on because I wanted to have a free flowing you know, a good spirited debate so we could highlight the ways that he's very wrong and to totally miss the point and miss the point that that's not what people, people are not, people are not saying he doesn't deserve like it, like no right, no right leaning person deserves to have the stage to debate. Right. I mean, you're just to miss the point so dramatically is well, damnable in its own way. I, uh, I was the other day, someone's asking say, what are, what are the biggest issues in, in sports journalism to take our little corner of the world? And I said, two things always come to mind, more jobs and more diversity, right? Yeah. It's really hard for me then to get to anything else. I was looking at these numbers the other day. This is in 2018. The AP sports editors uh, put out a racial and gender report card. This is just one example. Sports editors in America, 85% white, 90% male. Sports mm-hmm. reporters, 82% white, 89% male. Sports mm-hmm. columnists, 80% white, 83% male. These are in uh, Kendall Baker's Axios newsletter, which is very helpful on these matters. But I'm just like, where's 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 the interest in all these people in diversity in journalism? Right. Yeah. You can't get canceled if you never got hired in the first place. Yeah. Right. You know, you don't get to get canceled if you never got the job. And we are looking at decades and decades and decades of which many of these people have been working in journalism where they were working for places. And you and I are in the same same boat here, working places that were not diverse, that were not offering opportunities to everybody else. Yeah. So, again, spare me until until we actually try to write that enormous problem. Spare me this stuff. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't say that better. I mean, honestly, it's just and and listen, it's a lot of the people on this on this letter have not been in those newsrooms or comparable places that you mentioned in decades either, right? I mean, it's like I mean, even some of the most the people. I mean, a lot of people have graduated on to jobs outside of the newsroom or outside of you know publishing specifically, and or or they're, or they're freelance writers or 
or, you know, in the case of some people like Ian Baruma have been ousted uh, in the not too distant past as well. And it, I mean, just to be clear, just to go over that quickly, they, they, when he was running the New York Review of Books, they published a piece about, about Gian Gomeshi, uh, the Canadian talk show host, uh, who got charged uh, with a bunch of sexual assault things and uh, charges and, and uh, ended up having to apologize. And it was sort of a relitigation of his case along the, I mean, not specific, not, not exactly like what this letter says, but it's sort of like questioning the, the cancel culture, even, even in, in terms of like the Me Too era and issues of sexual assault. And he defended, Baruma defended the decision to publish it. Well, I'll just say this. We talked about it at the time. It was a terrible piece to publish for so many reasons. But at the end of the day, I was just like, well, why? I mean, regardless of the politics of it, regardless of what, whether or not you think it was right, why the hell did you think it was a good idea to publish it? Like, what did that do for the national debate? What did that do to the to victims? What did that like? How did that do anything except make you feel better about yourself for this for this same weird, like resisting cancel culture issue that's bubbling up in the back of your head? If you feel I mean, you got listen, we're not you, Brian, you and I are not spring chickens. We are of the age of the people that I'm pointing my finger at right now. Maybe not quite Ian Baruma, by the way. Just no, but if you son. or I wake up in the morning and we're like, you turn on CNN and you're like, and you have a, an inkling in your head that's like, what the fuck is wrong with these kids these days out there protesting in the street <laughs> or whatever? That's the moment where you like take a breath and go look in the mirror and you say, either I could be really wrong or I could be really in the wrong line of work. Yeah, you know, that, I mean, and 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 you, and maybe just the world doesn't need to hear what I have to say on the podcast this week. Or yeah, or even about this particular subject, right? I mean, yeah. it's just you know whatever whatever subject is in front. If of you. you feel so out of touch with what the world is doing, then then interrogate that, and don't just like find solace with your peer group. Which I mean, listen, I don't know that this was just a mass text message that Rick MacArthur, you know, sent out and just decided to to publish of his own accord it feels a lot like that right and it and it just it's just it's just kind of sad it's just it's sad this feels like a real offensive version of like you know of like george gervin or somebody talking shit about the new generation of basketball players you know i mean it's just it just it's just sad i saw somebody saying well this is not about defending the jobs and the and the status of the people to sign the letter this is about other people this is about doing it on behalf of other people. Come on. Come on. Really? Yeah. You know, really? I, I don't think so. Reader Checker Outer asks us this, David, would either of you have signed on to the Harper's letter? I think the answer is, <laughs> is probably no after what we just said. My question was, would you have signed on to any open letter, David? I mean, if we pick like the most popular, non-controversial press access no. thing. <laughs> No. I think I'm out on open letters, just generally. No, I mean, and that's kind of what I was just getting at. I don't think anybody needs my needs, like you know, me, my voice, like joining a chorus right now. I'd happily do it if I felt the cause was right, but I would certainly find hesitate to do anything. I mean, like, wouldn't you just write a piece in your own words rather than sign it with like thirty other people? It's 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 wild. It's wild. And just to, really quickly to touch on what you were saying before about representation and and jobs, like, you know canceling is more than the threat of one losing one's job, but the people sign the signatories of this letter, I feel confident could fairly easily employ every writer that gets canceled over the next two years, right? They could find a place for them in one of the, one of their 
one of their publications or 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 bi- otherwise their businesses. No one's lo- no one need lose a platform over saying something that's minorly in- minorly offensive to the wild liberal online hordes, right? I mean, like Harper's can sign that person up for a weekly column or a month. Sorry, not weekly. For a <laughs> is it monthly, bi-monthly? Yeah. I don't want to talk yeah. it in school here. But like they can, speaking they of can, not knowing what's in Harper's, go ahead. They can, they can put them online, you know. I mean, it's just it's sort of wild. It's sort of wild. The uh I do have a uh power ranking here of top five Harper's scandals of recent vintage. Do you want to hear these? Oh, please. Uh number five, publisher Rick MacArthur hates the internet. I don't know if that's really a scandal. But in uh, 2014, he was still using floppy disks, word perfect, and corresponding with authors like William Volman via typed letter. The internet, MacArthur told the New York Times, quote, wasn't much more than a gigantic Xerox machine. <laughs> I love that. Number four. What is word perfect? Word, <laughs> <laughs> word perfect. I don't even know the answer to this. Word perfect was Microsoft Word was it sort of like the new Coke of Microsoft Word? Was it a better yeah. version of Word, or was it a different? It was, was it a different? Was it, it was not a, Microsoft? I think it was the Pepsi of of okay. Of it Microsoft. was another word processing program that had uh, some. Le- I mean, some moment in the sun. Chris all made a changing his Twitter bio to "What is Word Perfect?" Yeah. Well, by the way, John uh, Rick MacArthur is sixty four years old. This is not a ninety year old person we're talking about right now. Yeah, no, 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 number four on the power rankings, uh, 2010, Rick MacArthur fires Harper's editor, Roger Hodge. Uh, The Times reports a quote in a rambling 40 minute monologue that left his employees perplexed. MacArthur declared, quote, the mainstream media is ignoring Harper's to death. Guess he fixed that problem. (laughs) Number three, uh, there was a Chris Hedges uh, charge of plagiarism in an article in a draft article he submitted to Harper's. Harper's did not run the story. Number two. Uh, the fact-checking email in 2018 makes it seem like Harper's is going to dox the creator of the shitty media men list. Talked about that here on the press box. And number one, David, my, maybe my all-time favorite, Lewis Lapham, longtime editor, mm-hmm. writes a column sharing his reactions to the 2004 Republican National Convention. Alas, the New York Times reports, the magazine arrived on subscribers' doorsteps before the convention had ever taken place. So... <laughs> Who's kind of had a kind of had a pre-reaction that was sold as an actual uh, as an actual reaction. All right, time for <laughs> listener mail. First letter, David, is from me. I was clicking around this morning, and there's a new New York Times profile of the band formerly known as the Dixie Chicks. Now just the Chicks. Here's the headline: The Chicks are done caring what people think. Now, the Times has stumbled on to the greatest. <laughs> oh my god celebrity profile headline of all time because i would submit that we are constantly being told that celebrities don't really care what you think mm-hmm. i don't know if you want some examples here miles teller is young talented and doesn't give a rat's ass what you think oh that's nice kevin durant doesn't care what you think uh it's also been used in political profiles <laughs> nancy pelosi doesn't care what you think what you <laughs> think of her john huntsman doesn't care what you think well that's that's a that's a shame that john huntsman doesn't care what i think it's probably news at this point if the celebrity being profiled cares what i think and i'm not sure we really need to by the way the dixie chicks have been outspoken for like two decades now so this is really not really not news that they don't care what what you think i think they have i think they have not cared blissfully so in a long time 
Yeah. But only if they cared what I thought. What I think that's the only news that belongs in the headline. What do you think? Who? What celebrity does care? Who, what you think I want this. We need to find the great search for the celebrity who cares what you, I mean, who cares what we think, who cares what we think. Yeah. What's well, a good profile, right? If they actually cared what we thought. Yeah. Like desperately cared. If they were desperately worried, what just like randos like us thought of them, that would be an interesting profile. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, that would be, yeah. I mean, that, that would, that would be a problem. I mean, that's a problematic condition, you know? I mean, I guess some people fall into that trap, but to really like seek everybody's approval, you know, that's, that's, that, that's, uh, there's not, I mean, I guess there's, I guess Sally Field, right? Wasn't, was it Sally Field back in the you day? It was me. like, they yeah, love me. Really they really love me. me. Yeah. But that's, that's more a, the academy. That's not like is that. That's not people. It's not you, David. Yeah, <laughs> she doesn't care what I think. Uh, I have very, very, very high opinion of Sally Field, though. In case she's listening, so. this is from our pal Chris Sullentrop. Wants to see if David can figure out what these people have in common. Oh no! Fred Savage, Tom Hanks, O.J. Simpson, Courtney Love, and Donald Rumsfeld. No, they did not sign a letter to Harper's about cancel culture. Let me just give you a hint there. David is Fred Savage, Tom Hanks, OJ, Courtney Love, and Donald Rumsfeld. Um, man, I feel like I should be able to get, but Fred Savage just doesn't have, I know he was a director and stuff, but I feel like just from Fred Savage alone, I should be able to, is it, is it, like, I should be able to suss something out. Is it like a Princess Bride thing? What am I, what, what? It's stupider than you think. It's uh, they all had birthdays on July eighth. Oh. The, the AP planner uh, <laughs> Twitter account set that out. Chris uh, commented on Twitter, "What a dinner party that That's would be!" Fantastic. What do you think OJ and Don Rumsfeld would talk about? This is from <laughs> Derp. Does Tucker Carlson have a line he cannot pass? What could he say that would get him fired from Fox? It seems like he's asking us the same question, right? Implicitly. It seems like he is in constant, he, like he's like pushing the boundary performatively every night. And I say performatively because like we, we've talked about Tucker Carlson a lot of times. I'm not trying to give him a pass the way that like, you know, we used to like absentmindedly give Ann Coulter a pass because we thought she was playing a, a, a wrestling character or whatever. I mean, he's, Tucker Carlson is an evil piece of garbage, but like it does seem like he's just, trying to figure out what button he could push to get called into an office and like cackling every night on the way home that he hasn't gotten reprimanded yet. Yeah. Tammy Duckworth, Senator from Illinois, was a target for a couple of nights saying all, all kinds of things about her. I mean, it was just reprehensible stuff too. I mean, almost like just laughable. I mean, it, it could have been a script from a, you know, episode of the O'Reilly factor from 10 years ago about someone else entirely, but about, you know, whatever, but it was just like, I mean, just so so ridiculous that really felt to me like he wanted like he wanted a win like he wanted a very specific win like he wanted if tammy duckworth does not become the vice presidential nominee he will dine out on that for the rest of his career mm -hmm. right and say that he got her yanked from the consideration and if he does he wants to be on the cutting edge on, on the forefront of whatever charges eventually inevitably get leveled against her because now she's the standard bearer or one of the two on that side yeah, I just, yeah, I don't, I don't think he is fireable for what he says on the air. I mean, I, who, how many people from Fox have been fired over stuff that happened on the air? It's much more stuff that happened off the air. I think if you look at just purely on the numbers, you know, the, the terms of big stars 
you know, why they left Fox. Sir, I don't think it's been comments like that. And and I think he'll probably just keep going. No, I don't I don't think so either. I do I mean, and and certainly it seems like in the post Rupert Murdoch era, it's even there's even less there there's even more of a blind eye turn to the sort of commentariat over there, you know, the primetime hosts as far as like how offensive they can be. But I I um you know, in an age where the Washington football team can change their change their name, uh, uh-huh. I kind of feel like anything's possible with enough money. Lean. I mean, we it's already been established that it doesn't matter if every commercial they run on that show is like you know, like a a, a random you know a my pillow ad or like you know <laughs> a, some sort of medication ad. But if enough money leans on a company, then maybe you know maybe there is something that he could say that would get him fired. This is from Alex Stewart. Given Biden's lead in the polls, is it too early to worry about what happens when Trump refuses to recognize election results? I feel I get this question a lot from family members. This is mm-hmm. a lot, the question a lot of people are are worried about. So here's my theory. Donald Trump will almost, if he loses, will almost certainly say that the election was stolen. I think that's just 100% chance. He was saying it last time before the election, uh, getting ready to make that case when before he somewhat surprisingly won. I also think there's the theory that Donald Trump is just too lazy to not leave the White House, right? I can totally imagine him skipping the inauguration, throwing out the window all the politeness we, you know, associate with presidential transitions, including the politeness that the Obamas afforded to him in 2016 and 2017. But I, I, I kind of think he's just gonna, he's just gonna pack up his toys and go home. What do you think? I do think that that's. I do think that that's that that's especially if he has a, you know, at some point he'll be setting up his post presidency plans. Remember, four years ago he was going to start his own TV network or like over the top network or whatever it is. There have been a lot of articles about this too. And forgive me, I do not remember who wrote this, uh, and and I I apologize, and I'm going to mangle whatever uh, the mangle it just by recounting it by memory. But you know, someone someone pointed out that the re- their fear is not that he would just say forget the votes i'm your i'm your you know dictator for life now but it's more like you really if if you if once you start questioning mail-in ballots once you start introducing these questions into enough different states that there's and, and if you file suit i mean and there's also poll watchers in all these states that they're doing you know they're, they're ready to you know, pull out all the stops in all these different directions and at the end of the day if they're if if the votes line up in a certain way or even a likely way Kind of all you have to do, like we saw in Bush v. Gore, was just sort of run out the clock on the recounts. If you can just pause the recounts or pause the counting of mail-in ballots to the point that like you might actually have some claim to victory by the, you know, by the end of the calendar year or whatever. It's it's really a bizarre hypothetical. And I hope against hope that the swamp that he, you know, has failed to uh drain and you know, all, all of the the otherwise sort of eyebrow raising semi-questionable parts of Washington establishment will kind of all swing into action at once. And I think he will probably be escorted from the White House by senior military officials, you know, very quietly and as not to, to hurt his reputation if he tried anything like that at all. Yeah. I think, I think, I don't, I think there'd be a lot of people who would, who would probably make it. You're saying he would be escorted out quickly yeah. if, if, he, yeah. if he didn't, if he didn't want to leave. I think if there was any, I think if he gave any indication of defying the results of the, of the election, there would be a lot of stuff very quickly happening uh, off stage that would change his tune. And I don't, and I don't, 
Uh, that's not something to be necessarily super proud of at <laughs> your country, your country. But in this in this situation, I, I think that the way that the military at least is lining up right now, that that would uh, it would be uh, I, that wouldn't surprise me. Sacked in the fool asks a few journalist centric political movies have come out during the Trump administration, the post Richard Jewell shock and awe, but nothing squarely about this era. What do you think will be the story at the heart of this film when it finally gets made? Uh, interestingly, <laughs> and speaking of Fox News, Bombshell also came out mm-hmm. during the Trump administration. And in a way, that sort of is the story of the Trump administration, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the sort of Fox News culture. Do you have anything anything else, David, that you think would make a good movie about journalists? I'm dubious of any movie about journalists. As much as I like to watch them, I'm dubious that any will work especially well. Yeah, I I can't think of one. I can't. Th- I mean, like, what, what, what? I mean, the best movies are. I mean, there, I guess there's there's a lot of good journalism movies from years past, but yeah, there's some. Yeah, I, I just can't. There's I mean, there's what, some good ones and a lot that journalists watch over and over again. <laughs> I see journalists sticking up for the paper. You know, it's like, come on, really, the paper? Yeah. We we going are we going with that? I can't I can't think of anything. I I have a I someday I'm I'm kind of against power rankings unless they're about Harper scandals just in general. But I uh-huh. I do ha- I do have a journalism movie one that I that at some point maybe we should roll out. <laughs> uh, this is from Quinn Fields. Would be interested in hearing y'all's thoughts on the place of mugshots in journalism, and whether it should ever have been there to begin with. He sends along a New York Times article that's about how a number of law enforcement officials have stopped sharing these images unless there's some public safety concern. And then also uh, certain newspaper chains have stopped doing those slideshows, which were just pure. I mean, like the most base hit Mm -hmm. magnet that you could possibly get. I remember when I was in Albuquerque one time visiting family there and I was at a gas station, I think, and there was like just like a newsprint style magazine that was just filled with mugshots. Like that was a whole magazine. It was just like, please have fun enjoying yourself with pictures of people who've been arrested. It's just, what? yeah. I, I mean, this, this is a thing that has just been low key, a just really gross way to, for people to enjoy themselves. Gannett here says mugshot galleries presented without context may feed into negative stereotypes and yeah. our editorial judgment are of limited news value. Uh, goodbye mugshots forever. And, and let's let's get behind that. I think. Well, and the mugshots are also released. I mean, I listen. I could be off about this in some jurisdictions or whatever, but mugshots usually come out sort of at the discretion of the police, right? So, like, and and it's depending on how busy they are, or more significantly, what that what they see as a sort of PR value of putting them out. Uh, I mean, makes a big difference in what gets out there too. So it's not. It's it's never. I mean, I, I just don't. I, I I agree with not putting them out. I think. I mean, I don't, I'm not quite exactly sure what the public good, unless it's a matter of you know, immediate danger. Yeah, I mean, but the people we're talking about here mostly are not like public officials, right? This is not like Tom Delay's mugshot or something like that, right? Sure. This is these are people that are just you know normal private citizens who are then their stuff is put out there for everybody's entertainment. This is from Real K Dog Kevin. Love that you guys are self-aware enough to disavow references to the Dakota Ring and Christmas Story, but proceed to drop both Seinfeld and Joan Collins references later <laughs> in the same episode. Uh, David was responsible for the former, me for the latter. Good stuff as always. Keep it up, boys. I really do think we need to have a Rubicon line of reference 
that you just really not ever, ever pass. I, Animal House is on the far side of that for me. I, the Seinfeld and The Simpsons basically at this point are on the other side, even though we grew up with that. You just really should just never reference those things. We Can we just release, we should just release two episodes for every, I mean, uh, two different versions of every episode. One where it's just the 40 and up episode that is how we normally <laughs> record it. And then we'll release a separate one where like Chris and Erica can do voiceovers. And every time we make a pop culture reference, Chris just comes in. He's just like, it's like that episode of SpongeBob where uh, and then just like proceeds to give some very modern like millennial uh, point of reference. Wouldn't, would that work better for people out there? Yeah, it's the what is word perfect version of the show. And the uh, and then the uh, senior version of the show. I, I kind of want a whole segment on references journalists should never make that we should just have cut off, right? The drawbridge went up. You can't mm-hmm. no more, no more of this. I mean, I think, I think we could actually come up with a pretty, with a pretty funny list. Finally, this is from Dr. Bobbert is Joe Biden's digital divide narrowing. How dare <laughs> you, sir? How dare you? But that does tell us it's time for David Shoemaker guesses the strained pun. Headline. Oh, all right. All right. Monday's headline about Republican pushback to Trump's Russia policy was Trump faces a GOP mutiny on the Russian bounties. Today's headline comes from AMCK125 and Todd Morrissey, who created a Twitter account to send this. By the way, the press box is very popular with people who do not have Twitter accounts. I don't know what that (laughs) says about People that probably really appreciate our Joan Collins references. (laughs) Right. I'm sure Todd Morrissey objected. Uh, This is from the New Zealand Herald. New Zealand, as you know, David, has done a very good job of controlling the spread of coronavirus, unlike the United States. A 32-year-old man there who had the virus was in managed isolation in an Auckland hotel, meaning he could not leave, not allowed to leave. Well, that man escaped. He went to a supermarket, and according to the paper, the man spent 14 minutes in the beauty aisle buying toothpaste, body wash, and razor blades. Sounds like us back in our Lower East Side days. Keyword here is aisle. Aisle as in aisle in the supermarket. What was the New Zealand Herald's strained pun headline? So he broke out of coronavirus isolation, supervised isolation, and went to the supermarket. I mean, went to the drugstore. Yeah, went to the market. Uh, Aisle, aisle, aisle of like aisle of man, aisle of aisle of. um, We're easing up. Treasure Island, uh, aisle of aisle of. why can't I think of any aisles? Isle of, it's not uh, Isle of Lucy. the Emerald Isle. Uh, uh, um, I'll be. I'll be back. I'll be. I'll be. A, I'll be. Getting there. You're. You're so close. It's I'll be, I'll be damned. Oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> great look on Chris's face right now. I'll be damned. COVID hotel escapers supermarket selfies. He Fantastic. is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Researched by that very same Chris Almeida. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. We're back Monday. I kind of want to do the segment about reinventing the Sunday political chat shows. If I can get myself ready to watch four hours of political chat shows on Monday. It might be time. It might be time to actually have a segment about the, the horrors of coronavirus again. We It's been, it's yeah, been several that? months and it's worse than ever now. It's like we're like now we're the. We're the hand wavers of this whole situation. Let's do that too, then. And of course, Joe Biden's digital divide. Plus, more lukewarm takes about the PDSC. Then, David. See you, Brian. <laughs>